This latest edition of the Big Tent Ideas podcast is about aid and how we can deliver it better. But before it starts, let me give you the news that the date for this year's Big Tent Ideas Festival has been set. It'll be at Mudshoot Farm on the 31st of August, and you can get details about it as well as letting us know what you want put on the agenda at our website, bigtent.org.uk. Now, Ian Saunders splits his time between a UK-based consultancy and a Kenyan conservation group. And in this episode, he discusses the opportunities and challenges for delivering Britain's international development aid in rural areas. As the world's fifth largest economy, respected internationally, the UK continues to be a global power. Many nations still look to the UK for leadership in ideas, innovation and democracy. To maintain this extraordinary leadership role, the UK needs a dynamic approach to meet the challenges of today's world, to help shape its own future and enhance human stability and prosperity across increasingly fragmented global societies. This requires international development support and especially in the current climate, the UK government needs to justify to the British electorate the levels and type of foreign aid that it is pledging. Human nature at home and abroad plays a major part in the level and effectiveness of aid and philanthropy. It is widely accepted that humans value the ownership of assets and enterprises gained through personal investment, effort or sacrifice over those given merely as a gift. So even if some efforts have been made to shift the nature of aid delivery in recent decades, why are governments including the UK government, still giving, or perceived to be giving, aid for free, and in return expecting cooperation and a sense of genuine ownership from aid recipients. Despite best intentions to achieve the opposite effect, the reality is that in many countries donor dependency continues to grow, alongside a mounting sense of resentment from aid recipients. In some cases, the UK is still being labelled as interventionist, or even colonialist. Meanwhile, there is a feeling amongst the UK electorate that their government is just handing out taxpayers' cash to foreigners without any meaningful return. To maintain its position in the world, the UK needs to continue investing in overseas development. However, to deliver success in terms of effectiveness and value for money, a new accountable, holistic and results-driven foreign aid solution is required. A solution which brings profit back to Britain while delivering economic, environmental, social, governance and security gains to the host nation. Engineering positive change requires first identifying and learning from past and ongoing experiences, including failures, which can be a painful process both for governments and for us as individuals. However, an honest, even at times brutal, self-analysis of how we manage ourselves as the human race and the situations that we create is essential if we are to engineer positive and sustainable change. Humankind, as the dominant species across the globe, has created two distinct societies, rural and urban, both of which are centres of of our habitation and productivity. The urban areas are growing exponentially to facilitate increasing human need and creating self-perpetuating societies of consumers for the current technological revolution. 
the rural areas are, as they've always been, the breadbaskets and the water catchment areas vital to the support of people in the cities and towns. Maintaining the balance between the two is what ensures our human stability and survival. If the rural environment cannot support the urban one, or is affected detrimentally by phenomena such as climate change and other unsustainable environmental damage, we as a species will ultimately cease to exist. One of the great challenges in maintaining the rural-urban balance is that as the architects of our own societies, we have evolved in a, in a disjointed way. Some nations have evolved faster than others through industrial and technological revolutions, and in doing so, have sacrificed many of the great rural spaces within their national borders. Many emerging countries currently still have expansive rural landscapes and predominantly rural populations. In a time when there are some human societies developing space tourism, exploring the benefits of nanotechnology and harnessing the power of artificial intelligence, it is also important to remember that there are others who still live in a way not dissimilar to that of their great ancestors. Despite this social separation, one element of the technological revolution of today does now reach even the most remote rural societies, and that is communications, mobile phones and the internet. But inheriting a global technological culture almost overnight, when many rural people are often poorly equipped to deal with a, such a sudden jump into the 21st century, can be a double-edged sword. There are more people today who, as a result of global communications, can now see what they have not got, and what others have got. And the chasm between the haves and the have-nots is growing exponentially, and is being broadcast into the global public domain as never before. This window into the world has mostly presented in sound bites and short news bulletins with little explanation or context, driven ever more human migration away from the rural areas and into the urban centres in search of great riches and faster internet connectivity, only for people to find there is little demand for high levels of rural unskilled labour. The combined result is that urban ghettos expand as brain drain depletes the rural areas of their human capital. At both ends of the spectrum, people feel increasingly disenfranchised and neglected, caught in a downward spiral of poverty, environmental decline and lawlessness. The resulting instability creates a wider threat to society as a whole and hampers both development initiatives and legitimate private enterprise. To exacerbate these challenges, Increasingly rural people in emerging countries are being isolated from their urban cousins, including their own policymakers. There is a feeling amongst some policymakers that verges on embarrassment when asked about their rural history. Leaders in emerging states are understandably desperate to embrace technology and new thinking and to demonstrate that they can be credible partners on the global stage. In parallel, many of the younger generation in the rural areas of Africa, Asia and South America express 
a sense of desperation at having to stay in their rural villages as they watch the rest of the world evolve and at the first opportunity they leave for the big human centres. This rural urban migration is not a new phenomenon. It occurred in many of today's industrialised nations when newspapers were the modern way to communicate events. Unlike the emerging nations of today, however, those countries that benefited from the Industrial Revolution had smaller human populations and were able to maintain a balanced rural economy that fostered stability and closed the economic gap between the rural and urban societies. In countries that are lucky enough to have such established rural economies, the threat of not having them is seldom contemplated. However, in today's fast-moving and increasingly complex world, to neglect or leave behind the potential of a nation's rural landscape and the people who reside there can be catastrophic from an economic, social, environmental and security perspective. Rural stability is being threatened by a new and very real outcome of this situation in many emerging countries. The rural youth who remain in the villages due to their newfound window into the rest of the world, albeit through a small screen, and knowledge of technology are divesting their traditional elders of their influence and replacing traditional systems with less robust social structures, which, despite their fragility, have the power to control whole communities and are open to corrupt, political, criminal or violent exploitation. People in the long established industrialised nations have become adept at creating urban or built environments. They have developed process and regulations, structured frameworks and because of levels of law enforcement and social surveillance, there is in the main a high degree of legal accountability. Many rural landscapes in the industrialised countries are managed in a similar way as the human population efficiently utilise the environment to provide the ecosystem services needed. In wealthier countries, rural areas are also viewed as areas of high agricultural production, tranquility, domestic leisure and often as places to relocate to when personal finances allow. As a result, they can be affluent areas which people value and work to maintain and where rural communities are proud to refer to themselves as country folk. Such rural areas have achieved economic, social and environmental stability. But what of the huge rural spaces in emerging countries or in the increasing number of countries subject to conflict, post-conflict reconstruction, excessive levels of corruption, organised crime, natural disasters, financial insolvency and other forms of instability. Despite their evolving challenges, these at-risk rural areas are increasingly being seen as 21st century diamonds in the rough. Once ignored by all except the people who live there, and perhaps wildlife conservationists and some eco-tourist operators, these forgotten landscapes now represent a valuable, in-demand and finite commodity. That commodity is space, terrestrial space, and it's up for grabs. To control, exploit, invest in, build upon, build through, fight over and even kill for. In Te'alia there is increasing demand from some wealthy nations 
with high human populations at home to find space so they can grow food to sustain their own populations who live many thousands of miles away. We are now witnessing situations whereby traditional international tax-generated aid is being poured into many at-risk rural areas where at the same time profit-based commercial investment is competing against it and undermining its potential. The people who inhabit and own these rural landscapes have also gained a new status but this also makes them a target to be controlled, exploited, influenced, supported, invested in, attacked or even killed. Some rural communities have retaliated in confusion and mistrust, turning against legitimate philanthropic support that is being offered to them, while others are exploiting and abusing the support given to make personal gains, often at the expense of their wider community. As we humans grow in number, our reliance on the natural environment and its ecosystem services increases. Supply and demand are integral to our consumer society's market-driven economy. However, try as we might, we still cannot directly supply, replicate or fabricate many of the services provided by the natural environment, resulting in a precarious imbalance as demand increases for renewable but limited or diminishing supplies. Much has been written about future natural resource-driven conflicts, water wars and the likes. However, these conflicts are not a future threat. They are happening today across the globe and are having an, in, having an intrinsic and equivocal effect on rural societies, economies and international security. The industrialised nations of the world increasingly have to assist developing nations to shoulder the financial burden of direct or indirect environmental damage, caused sometimes by the host nations, sometimes by the industrialised nations, or often by a combination of both. The environmental damage has resulted in biodiversity loss, the proliferation of famine and or flood, poverty, increasingly marginalised communities, civil unrest, conventional conflict, the destruction of rural economies and the creation of investment deserts and ready-made breeding grounds of human despair. Such environments are ripe for exploitation and recruitment by organised criminal extremist and terrorist organisations. With prudent planning and management, however, these same areas could actually provide much needed financial and environmental returns for their inhabitants, their countries and for global investors. To do this, they have to become investment ready. That is to say, economically, socially and environmentally stable, developing a robustness against such destabilizing forces and reducing the risk to potential investors. Could UK aid not support and generate profit through such a process? These observations are not intended to generate any form of philanthropic response by fostering pity for human or environmental issues, but to promote greater analysis of and a pragmatic response to dangerous evolving situations that are largely cloaked in their own remoteness. Overlooking the gradual but seminal changes that occur within societies receiving foreign aid means that because of a sense of creeping, creeping normalcy, donor nations like the UK often fail to identify, analyse and proactively respond to crisis before it's too late.
and therefore reap the harsh global consequences. To address many of the challenges that we as a global society identify as vital to the future of our planet and the survival of our fellow human beings, we use governmental aid and philanthropic giving. A much used model for delivering foreign aid is through a third party, a not-for-profit entity as an operational partner and interface on the ground. These not-for-profit entities usually originate from a wealthier country and are unfortunately viewed in-country increasingly as uh, foreign intervention interventionists, despite having local employees and a local office. Even with ongoing engagement between donor representatives and recipients, experience is now showing that this philanthropic approach to international development is still very much misunderstood and distrusted by many recipients themselves within the host countries, resulting in questionable levels of positive donor impact. In some places, aid has long been actively abused, ridiculed and even exploited. A prevalent but not openly aired view on the ground is, why should anyone want to give away free money or invest in infrastructure and enterprises with no expectation of financial return, unless they have some form of hidden agenda? Sadly, in many instances, donated money is increasingly having a far lesser value than commercially invested money, where the rationale, making a profit, is better understood and therefore more trusted. An increasing number of recipients of overseas aid, especially when distributed through international NGOs, feel that their cooperation in receiving aid is merely assisting foreign organisations to justify their own existence and to continue operating. This can lead to recipients resenting instead of valuing the assistance being offered. In some cases, corrupt and unethical practices can also follow. Community leaders from recipient communities are able to exploit the position of power in which they find themselves as aid recipients. They hold the delivery NGO to ransom, knowing that the NGO has to report positive results back to the donor agency or government and cannot do this without the full cooperation of the recipient community over whom the leaders have control. The inconvenient reality is that, usually without the knowledge of the donors, NGOs will often succumb to this kind of extortion to keep their operations going. This situation has evolved through a combination of factors over the last six decades. Differing attitudes and expectations, fear, suspicion, cultural misunderstanding, interventions, deals, politics, and knee-jerk aid justification. No one side is to blame. This is a situation that has evolved through the conflicting elements of what constitutes human nature. Attitudes around the world are constantly changing, yet despite best intentions, development approaches have not kept up. New methodology is needed that will identify and address new lessons which, despite any existing status quo, we must act on. We need to ask the question, should the UK foreign aid budget only be used philanthropically, or can emphasis be placed on a commercial development model designed to build long-term stability and prospects for rural people who currently have no other choice but to accept aid, while also providing a tangible financial return to the UK taxpayer? 
Increasingly, the UK taxpayer is demanding a reduction in the foreign aid budget. An alternative to reducing this important budget would be to generate a greater return from it. Make it better value for money. This would allow the government to show UK taxpayers that a proportion of their taxes is actually being commercially invested internationally, aiding security and global development while supporting equitable UK investment overseas, maintaining Britain's position of positive influence in the world and bringing money back into the UK economy. At Natural Security Consulting, based on decades of on-the-ground experience across four continents in the non-for-profit and for-profit sectors, we are in the final stages of developing a formulated system which addresses the underlying issues affecting the impact, efficiency and profitability of foreign aid and how a government could link with global investment funds to increase impact and generate financial returns for the UK. Government and donor agencies will be able to use this system to ensure that their international development aid in rural areas around the globe is delivered effectively, it drives lasting positive change in the recipient nations and brings profit back to Britain. That was Ian Saunders of National Security Consulting and the Kenyan-based Savo Conservation Group with his thoughts on how we can do much more with our aid budget. What did you think? And do you have a podcast idea of your own you'd like to broadcast? Well, let us know by tweeting at us at Big Tent or contact us through our website, bigtent.org.uk. You can also get details there about this year's Big Tent Ideas Festival. It's on the 31st of August and you can find out how to get tickets. We'll be back soon. Thanks for listening.